We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, a little bit of a lengthy section here, verses 1 through 16, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and I've asked Darren Thornhill to come read these to us. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, And Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love." Thank you, Darren. Well, this passage, I think, is very instructive in terms of helping us understand what pastors, pastor, teachers, shepherds, um, should be aiming at as they shepherd the flock of God that God has given to them. So, uh, in some ways, I'm directing this at the the elders and the soon-to-be elders here but it's for all of us, of course. And uh, what pastors, this is what pastors should be aiming at as we look through this section, because it's what God is aiming at in giving us gifted men uh, as pastors to the church. So let's, let's begin here. As Paul often does in his letters, In the first part of this letter, first three chapters actually, he lays out the great doctrinal truths related to Christ and the work of Christ, the person of Christ, uh, the eternal purposes of God. He goes into the incredible things in the first three chapters of Ephesians. But then he applies these truths in the practical life of the church, beginning in chapter 4, which is what we read here, what Darren read. Uh, 
So as we begin this section, we see him starting with the word therefore. I therefore, therefore looking back to all this stuff he said. I therefore, in light of that, um, in light of all that I've said about Christ, Paul says, uh, I therefore, Paul, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then he tells a little bit of what that walk is like. That walk should be characterized by humility. You see it there in verse 2. Humility and gentleness and patience. And my translation has forbearance and, and love. Uh, this is for all of us, the elders and every one of us. Those characteristics right there. Um, and then he says there should be an overall mindset of being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. It's spiritual unity, the unity of the spirit in a bond of peace. So those are just uh, characteristics that he's pointing out for the body of Christ, for all of us, and for the elders. Unity amongst God's people is absolutely vital to the life of the church. The more we understand of God's purpose and plan for saving a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, the more we see how central unity is to what God is aiming at. Uh, look at how he says this and emphasizes it in verses 4 through 6. There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he's, he's emphasizing this thing of, of oneness. And, uh, of course, if you, if you remember the book of Ephesians, this, uh, the big thing he was a t talking about here was this uh, fact that there were Jews and Gentiles coming into this new church, this be beginning of the church of God. And there were some real problems because there were so many differences. He says, listen, don't look at your differences. Look at the things that unite you. One God, one, uh, one faith, one spirit. All the things he mentions here. One baptism, one God and Father. So unity is vital. He knew it was vital in that day and age, and it is still vital today. There's lots of things that would separate God's people. And the unity is absolutely vital to the well-being of the church. Uh, if we're Christians, God has ordained a spiritual unity for us. And I kind of emphasize the word spiritual there because we're not talking about uniformity in external things. Things like what clothes you wear or what kind of food you eat or don't eat. That's not what he's looking at here. He's talking about a, the essential unity we have in Christ. The essential unity related to our relationship to God in Christ. We all, especially those in leadership, should be very intentional about this, about maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. If something disrupts this Christian oneness, it should be lovingly dealt with so that the bond of peace continues to grow amongst God's people. 
So, uh, you elders, this is an important aspect of church life, maintaining that unity that God has established. Um, we'll get into that just a little bit more later because he brings it up a number of times in this section. But I want you to notice now the shift in thought that begins in verse 7. Though we have an essential unity, we also have, we have to recognize that there's great diversity amongst individuals because of the differing gifts and ministries that God has given. You see it in verse 7, but to each one of us, so he's talking about the various members of the, the body, the church. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ has measured out gifts for individuals in the, in the body. So there's a, a shift here from unity to the diversity. Each one, every Christian, is given gifts by grace, not merit, not our merit. Christ is the one that merits the gifts. He receives these gifts and he's given, to man, given them to man. Not our merit, but they're given as Christ sees fit for the good of the church. So gracious gifts given out in the body, to all the body. This could be misunderstood, but we, if you're a Christian, we're all charismatics. <laughs> all that word means is gracious gift. And if you're a Christian, you have a gift or gifts that God has graciously given to you. To each one, it says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, Paul then goes on to, to prove that point from the Old Testament by, by uh, mentioning an Old Testament passage which he relates to the resurrected and ascended Christ. So in verse 8, therefore it says, When he ascended, that is Christ ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now he brings this verse up to emphasize that gave gifts to men part because this is what he's pointing out. God has given gracious gifts to his church. Some of those gifts have to do with the leadership that he puts in place, but that's just part of it because the gracious gifts are distributed to the whole church. So that's the reason he quotes this verse. He's, he says this verse, if you look back, it's, it's Psalm 68. You don't need to look at it now, but... In Psalm 68, verse 18, it talks about God ascending, but Paul applies it to Christ. And he said it has to do with Christ receiving gifts and then giving them to man, to his people. So his ascension came after he descended, which speaks of his coming down to earth as a man, his humbling himself, his crucifixion and his burial, uh, all that is understood by this ascension and descension. The descension coming down to, to earth, the ascension is going back up to heaven, and when he goes back up, he receives these gifts and then gives them out to the church. 
He's now ascended far above all the heavens, and as victor over all opposition, he gives gifts to men. That's what we're talking about here today, primarily. These gifts come by way of the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit. Um, you remember Jesus said, I go away, and it's for your good that I go away, because I'm going to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and uh, he'll be with you. So he's talking about this giving the Holy Spirit these gifts that come to us by way of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, Paul mentions the offices of apostle, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. I put those together because I think he's thinking of one group. I don't think he's thinking of a special group of people called teachers. In fact, in other places when this is uh, mentioned, like in Timothy, he talks about the, them as one group, the pastor teachers. So uh, that's the ones we're zeroing in on today. He's given these apostles and prophets, which you might say, well, do we have those today? I don't want to get off track here too much, but not really, not the kind he's talking about. These were the apostles and prophets that were the foundation of the church, uh, Christ being the chief cornerstone. There's a sense, there's just a very limited sense in which you can use that word apostle for one who is sent, and sometimes it's used that way, but most of the time what we're talking about are the, the apostles, and that's what he's talking about here. We have them today in the sense that we have their writings. That was a gift to, to the church right there, that God had them write their um, inspired thoughts down so that we would have the scriptures in the New Testament. But we're talking here about pastors and teachers, which are an ongoing gift to the church. And so we want to we analyze that a little bit, bit today. It was not Paul's intent to give a complete list of gifted people uh, the gifts that God has given to the church, but rather to list some of the more important leadership positions in this verse 11. Uh, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So for our purposes here this morning, we're emphasizing the pastor teachers. Uh, other de designations of that same position are the elders, sometimes we'll talk about the elders, or the overseers, or the shepherds. The shepherd, uh, the, the word is the same basic root word for pastor as shepherd. You could just as well translate it shepherd as pastor. So these are positions that have to do with local congregations, um, giving a group of believers, a body of believers, pastors and shepherds, elders, overseers. So our question then is, what, what is the purpose for the pastor? What's God's purpose for the pastor, the pastors? We're told very clearly it is for the equipping of the saints. You see it right there. Some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the equipping of the saints. 
He gives these gifted men to the church to equip the saints. So I would just say, I'll, I'll direct this to Andy and David, the ones coming on here. Through your teaching and preaching and example, you are to be equipping this local body of believers. If you want to have an idea of what, 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 what should I be aiming at, you should be aiming at equipping this body of believers. <clears throat> it might sound a little trite, but it might help you to remember what God wants you to emphasize. Pastors are to be equipping the saints for bodybuilding. Equipping the saints for bodybuilding. Helping the people of God to learn how to minister to one another in such a way that they, it builds up the body of Christ. The work of ministering to the body is done primarily through the day-by-day -day interaction of God's people with one another. Pastors are to equip all the saints for that work. In a very real way, all Christians are full-time ministers. All Christians are full-time ministers because you are to be equipping the saints. That's what the job of the pastor is. But then they are, are equipped to build up the body of Christ, to minister. And uh, so I, I never liked that idea of full-time minister because that's what we all are. One of the main duties of the pastor is to impress upon everyone under their care the duty and privilege of ministering to the body. So pastors equip, and all God's people are to minister. And, you know, the Reformers talked about the priesthood of all believers. Well, that's what we're talking about, the priesthood of all believers. None of us is to be passive or uninvolved concerning the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. <clears throat> Only when every member does his or her part in the body is it built up the way it should be. We all need one another because each person's gift or gifts is only one among many measured out by Christ. He knows how to fit a body together. Yeah. But he, it involves all of us, you see. Some, mini some ministries may seem more important than others, but none are unimportant. All are essential to the proper functioning of the body. Now, I've mentioned this uh, message before, but Francis Schaeffer had a wonderful message called No Little Places, No Little People. Right. And uh, that's true. Whatever body of believers you're part of, it's no little, no little thing. And you in that body, there's no little people in the body of Christ. No one is unimportant in the body of Christ. We all need what God has gifted others with for the benefit of the entire church. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit 
for the common good. See, each one for the common good. Each individual for the good of the body. Well, I'm going to make a little aside here because it might be helpful to us when we start thinking about spiritual gifts. One of the things that usually comes up is how do I know my gift? You know, what gift do I have? And as pastor, somebody, you know, somebody might come to you someday and say, oh, how do I know what gift God's given me? And uh, So I'm going to give you some thoughts that I, I think are helpful and uh, maybe, maybe they'll be helpful to you. I hope so. First of all, some people have specific offices or gifts mentioned in the scriptures like the ones we're talking about here today, apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers. But most of God's people have gifts that are not named specifically in the Bible, but are nevertheless spiritual gifts given for the purpose of serving the body in that person's unique way. Every one of us are unique, you know, we have a unique background, unique personality. God uses that in terms of your spiritual gift. And you may not be able to put a name on it, but it's nevertheless a real thing. So I, I guess part of what I'm saying is don't, we don't need to worry about being able to name the gift or gifts that each person has. Don't get all bent out of shape on that. A person's gift is often a heightened supernatural enabling of a natural gift. It has to do with your personality and thing, things, which God, you know, that, that natural gift is something that God brought about through each Christian's unique background and aptitudes and temperament. The best way, now here's the thing I want to emphasize, the best way to determine your gift is to think about those around you you can serve. This is the way to, if you want to know what your spiritual gift is, think about those around that you feel like you could serve. Start doing that. Your gifts or gift will most likely be along the line of what you can do and care to do by the grace of God to help others. So just as just a little aside since we're talking about this gifting of each individual part of the church, I thought that might be somewhat helpful. You know, the Bible talks about um, the gift of mercy and service and giving. Well, those those are broad categories. A lot of a lot of things could go under the category of service or mer- mercy. You might have the gift of mowing somebody's yard, <laughs> or shoveling somebody's snow. <laughs> Since we're getting a little snow today. <clears throat> Well, there are many different modes of service, but those many different ways of ministering are all directed to the same end. All the diversity actually is to help the church grow more closely together, more closely knit together. All of God's gifting of individuals is aimed at a definite goal, and you see that in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, 
to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. A tremendous verse. This is, what, this is what God's doing with all these gifts that he's put in the church. So Paul mentions four different facets of the goal that pastors should be aiming at in this verse we just read. So we'll just take a moment on each one of them. First, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So there he's bringing that subject up again, the unity of the faith. Remember we said in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, now he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Um, in that verse 3, he emphasized preserving and guarding the unity we already have. Here he speaks of the goal towards which we are striving until we all attain this unity. Now, these are not competing ideas. They actually are complementary. That which we have been given through the work of the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, we must continually and progressively take hold of and work out day by day in the life of the church. So he's given it, but each day we, we strive more and more to enter into it, this unity of the faith. Next, verse 13 mentions the attaining, of attaining the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, you can't be a Christian without some knowledge of the Son of God. From the very beginning of the Christian life, there has to be something of the knowledge that Christ died for my sins. But he's talking about deepening that knowledge, a, pro a progress in this area. Knowledge of the Son of God is uh, something that we should always be advancing in. And this is more than just, uh, you know, advancing in our intellectual understanding, our under uh, knowledge of Christ. This is experiential heart knowledge of the person and work of Christ. A fuller and more complete and intimate application of his character to our character. That's what we're talking about here. So he's, he's bringing out different facets um, of this attaining to the unity, the knowledge of the Son of God. And then he goes on. and points out the area of maturity. You see it again there in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. We all begin the Christian life as children that need to grow. You don't come in as a mature Christian. It just doesn't happen. It's just the same way as life in general. You start out as a, as a baby. Uh, a baby that needs to grow. Now there's nothing wrong with being a child when you are a child. But we are not to stay children. We are not to continue to speak as a child, to think as a child, to reason as a child. There comes a time to to do away with childish things, in other words, to grow up. And that's what he's talking about here, until we all become a mature man, a mature person. 
Now, sadly, it's possible to grow old and not to grow up. Growing older happens naturally. It's unavoidable. But growing up, becoming mature, as Paul is speaking about here, is something that is supernatural. It has to do with the grace of God, and it has to do with godly choices that we make each day. We grow spiritually mature through grace-driven effort. That's a, I want you to think about that phrase a little bit. We go spiritually mature through grace-driven effort. Paul says, I labor more than you all, but not me, the grace of God in me. He was striving to advance in the Christian life, but he said, it's the grace of God that brings that about. So, grace-driven effort. Effort initiated and empowered by the grace of God in our lives. Apart from grace-driven effort, we will grow old but not grow up. And really, you know, we're talking about pastors here or elders. What, what's that word elder mean? Well, it means older, spiritually older. Uh, you might say that an elder is simply a grown-up Christian, <laughs> a grown-up Christian that God gives to the church to help it grow. And when we're talking about the church growing, we're not talking primarily about numerically you know, getting more people. We're talking about spiritually becoming more spiritually mature people. If that happens, the church will grow <coughs> internally, and then there'll be, God will add to its number. But that's not primarily what we're talking about. We're talking about growth, individual growth in the Christian life, becoming more spiritually mature people. And that's true for the elder, even though the elder, we're saying this person is a grown-up Christian, they don't stop maturing just because they come to become an elder. They better not, because there's always room to grow. So, if that's what we're talking about, maturity, how do you measure? How do you measure Christian maturity? Well, Paul tells us right here in this verse 13, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We are to grow up to the measure of the stature of Christ. Now that shows that we all will continue to need maturing because we're talking about Christ becoming conformed to the character of Christ. The, the standard of maturity for the Christian is conformity to the character of Christ. And that's far different than what the world considers to be maturity, uh, which usually has to do with, you know, being a success in business or a worldly success somehow, some, some achievements in the world. Many of the role models that young people have today are diametrically opposed to the moral character of Christ. And we cannot go to, to, to the world to see what maturity looks like. Right. Often you'll find mostly immaturity. So 
not, not the world standards, but Christ. That's why it's really important, as the verse says, to have a knowledge of the Son of God. What's Christ really like? Uh, true biblical knowledge of Jesus. And sad to say, there's kind of a politically correct Jesus today that some religious people talk about, which is, again, not the true standard that we're to look at. Uh, just to give you an example, there's uh, one of the political candidates today running for president says that the love of Jesus has shown, shown him that he uh, that this marriage he has to another man is really such a wonderful thing. Jesus wants us to love. Total distortion of the true character of Christ. Total distortion. But, uh, you know, if you don't know who Christ is, you don't know the Bible, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, that sounds loving. That sounds like what Jesus would do. Totally opposite of what Jesus would say is is uh, righteous. So, anyway, our standard is the character of Christ as presented in the scriptures, a true, uh, the true biblical knowledge of Jesus. Which leads us then to verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness, by deceitful uh, scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. So, one of the marks of immaturity is instability, vacillating. He said, the winds and waves of false teaching and current fads and fal uh, fancies, uh, powerful personalities can toss the immature here and there, leading them astray. That's a mark of being yet a child. You don't, you don't know what Christ is like. You don't see the right way. You're tossed here and there, but somebody says this, somebody says that. Uh, the trickery and craftiness and deceitful people putting forth wrong, do wrong doctrines. Uh, the, the childish, the immature Christian do not have, does not have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. Uh, I heard one pastor give an illustration. I'm adapting it a little bit. But he said it's like a little baby that... Uh, you know, after the child is weaned, the mom starts feeding it some little bit more solid food. Uh, but the mom picks out the food because she knows what's good for the baby, what's healthy. And then she'll start putting little things on the, the tray or on the table, and the baby will pick them up and put them in her mouth. But that's good food because the mom picked it out. But the little kid starts crawling around on the floor and says, oh, there's a little dead bug. <laughs> or there's a, oh, lint. <laughs> Sticks it in the mouth, you know. This is not healthy. <laughs> but see, that's because they don't know 
what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's not good. They're immature yet, you see. And so the crafty, trickery, deceitful people take advantage of that, and they'll, they'll lead you astray. So you need to have good food. And part of that comes just learning to discern between right and wrong and what's, what's right doctrine, what's good, true doctrine. So you're not eating unhealthy things, taking in unhealthy things. So, again, we're talking here about some of the work of the elder. That's why the elder must be able to teach. They need to teach these young Christians and all of us what's, what's healthy, you know, what's, what's the right doctrine, what's truth. Um, so they must be able to teach and their lives must be above reproach. Their words and their ways must declare and display biblical Christianity. They must know how, they must, well, first of all, they must know themselves what's right. They must have discernment themselves uh, in terms of what the Bible teaches. And then also teach this to the body, the rest of the Christians. Uh, they must have discernment. They must understand what the gospel is all about and their lives should support their message. Uh, we're not talking perfection, of course, uh, but we are talking about something that's real in their lives and substantial in their lives. That's why they can be in that position to uh, teach and help us discern right from wrong, truth from error. They must submit themselves to the supreme authority of Christ. He's the, he's the real shepherd, the, the ultimate shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, an elder is an under-shepherd, so they have to submit themselves to the supreme authority of Christ as presented in the scriptures, speaking the truth in love, and continue in this area of growing mature themselves. But of course, that's not just for pastors. Every Christian should be striving to speak the truth in love. You see it in verse 14. Contrasted to these deceitful uh, doctrines, trickery of men, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. So not just speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love, which will cause the church to grow in all aspects unto him who is the head. Speaking of Christ here. As head, Christ directs the proper functioning of the whole body so that we grow, we grow up under his direction and into his likeness. So again, the, the shepherds, the pastors are under him. He's the head. He's the real director of everything. I mean, that's the way it has to be. Or you, won't, you don't have a church. You have something man-made, man-centered. And, it, and, you know, a body that doesn't 
obey the head is a messed up body. I mean, that's what convulsions are. But the proper functioning of the body is to do what the head says. And, of course, the head is Christ. As head, Christ directs the proper functioning of the whole body so that it grows up under his direction. Apart from Christ's leadership and life, there will be no growth because the church is not man—it's not a man-made organization. It's a living organism that lives because of the life of Christ empowering it. Christ is our life as a church, as individuals. Christ is our life. Apart from him, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We, this church can do nothing apart from him. Which brings us then to the last verse we want to consider this morning. Verse uh, 16. Let's just read verse 15 to get the flow here. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which that which every joint supplies, each individual person, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That verse is kind of a summary of all we've looked at here this morning. Uh, tremendous, tremendous thoughts in here. It reemphasizes, this verse reemphasizes the importance of the harmonious interaction between the various members of the body for the proper functioning of the whole body. When every spiritually active, when every spiritually active member of the body does its part according to the measure of Christ's gift, the entire church grows spiritually. God has measured out these gifts for the purpose of the church growing. And when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, the church will grow. It'll grow supernaturally from what God has supernaturally given to it to help it grow. Um, And it will build itself up in love. Think of that. Building itself up in love. Again, we're not talking about increasing the size of membership. We're we're increasing the members' spirituality. Spiritual growth, becoming more mature as believers, becoming a healthy, mature, loving, united body of believers, growing from grace to grace. That's, That's what you elders should be aiming at. That's what we all should be aiming at, to become a healthy, mature, loving, united body of believers. A gathering of believers intimately united to one another, showing forth unity amongst the great diversity of members. It's it's supernatural. It can't be done apart from the work of Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit. And that's This is what 
you elders are working towards equipping us all. Again, that's, let me just uh, read the verse here. He gave these pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. The equipping of the saints, helping each member to use their gifts for the good of the whole body, moving the church more and more towards maturity, encouraging the proper working of each individual part will cause the growth of the body for the building of, a, of, a, of itself in love. I think it's good and I maybe help hopefully kind of humbling to for the elders to remember that most of the ministry of the church is not done by you. Well, we got that so twisted around in contemporary Christianity. We think that this this guy up here is the minister. (laughs) What we're talking about here is all of us are ministers, you see. And most of the maturing, most of the most of what really advances the church is the work of the members, each individual member. The daily, day-by-day interaction of the people who are being equipped by the elders, the pastors, for their various ministries. Well... I think Paul purposely ends this section by emphasizing that the church builds itself up in love. I think he just hit on this right at the end. It builds itself up in love. Love must be the motivating factor of all that we do. Or it's going to come to nothing. Yeah, I mean, First Corinthians 13 says that very clearly. It doesn't matter about the prophecy and all this other stuff. Without love, it profits nothing. So, building itself up in love. We must be rooted and grounded in love. We're told in chapter 3, verse 17, rooted and grounded in love. We must show forbearance in love to one another. That's what we read in verse 2. We must speak the truth in love, in love, in love, you see. Uh, Ultimately... We know that we love only because Christ first loved us and gave himself for us. We must be rooted and grounded in his love before we will be able to show love and help one another, build one another up in love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. He first loved us. So... Andrew and Mason and Andy and David. I just close by saying this. Help us to see more of Jesus. Help us to see more of his, his love. Seek, seek to show forth something of his infinite beauty and grace and holiness and glory and power and wisdom and we could say a lot more things seek to show us more of him 
in your preaching and in your teaching and in your lives. Show us more of Christ. If you do that, I'm confident that God will be glorified in our midst. The saints will be equipped and this church will prosper. So I'll turn things back over to Andrew and